Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 123rd show. Today's guest is Michael Timms, author of How Leaders Can Inspire Accountability, Three Habits That Make or Break Leaders and Elevate Organizational Performance. I love leadership books, love this book, think everybody should um, be reading this, and especially in college, an MBA program should have this as like a must read. Uh, for these future leaders of companies and entrepreneurs. So, Michael, let's start with you telling us about your background. Sure. Well, thanks, uh, Mark, for that introduction. And and uh, yeah, I uh, man, you know, I think I wish I had this book um, earlier in my career. I wouldn't have made so many dumb mistakes. <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, so a little bit about myself. Um, so my background is so first of all I am uh, Canadian I'm in uh, I live in in uh, British Columbia Canada uh, just kind of in a in a mecca for uh, outdoor recreational activities um, and um, <clears throat> but uh, so I um, my background is in human resources um, I actually when I went to university I was really interested I got really interested in in uh, leadership I read the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People loved it. And I was like, this is exactly what I want to be doing with my life is teaching these kinds of principles. And so I, uh, at the time I, I was in finance, I graduated in finance, I did an MBA and specialized in HR thinking that that was going to get me closer to, to leadership development. But of course I, <laughs> once I got into human resources, it was all uh, compensation and benefits and recruiting and, and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until I had uh, just kind of a string of, of, uh, really bad leaders. My leaders got, the people who uh, my bosses got progressively worse throughout my career. And uh, until the, this last guy was brutal. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to my first love, which is, um, which is really leadership. And, um, and that's when I started my own business. And that was uh, a little over, that was about seven and a half years ago. Uh, and uh, haven't, haven't looked back. Congratulations. And you're right about HR that most uh, CEOs don't see that HR should be like the mother of the company, uh, grooming people to maximize their potential, grooming for uh, future leaders as opposed to reporting to the CFO and overseeing benefits and things like that. It's a total um, loss of real talent that could be dealt. My sister's head of HR, and she's been lucky a couple of times uh, reporting directly to the CEO and doing exactly what HR people should be doing. So good for you that you started your own venture. Thank you. How do you like being an entrepreneur? Uh, it's great. You know, it's not for everybody. Uh, being an entrepreneur is um, like, uh, so my wife, uh, she works, uh, she's an MRI technologist. And so she works in the hospital. And uh, we comment several times about the different personality types. Of, uh, you know what? A lot of people just, they, they, they want to, they want it to be pr pretty clear about, hey, what am I supposed to be doing today? Um, you know, what are my responsibilities? They want those, that scope of responsibility very well defined. Um, and uh, so, but, and I think there's a lot fewer of us that are okay with not having our scope of responsibility de defined and, and just kind of uh, um, deciding how we're going to, how we're going to make money. But it, it is tough. I mean, for those people who are considering being an entrepreneur, it's tough, you know, creating money out of thin air. Um and I, I used to not have respect for, for salespeople until I became an entrepreneur. <laughs> I realized, oh, yeah, nothing works <laughs> until the money is coming in the door. So, uh, so yeah, it, I, I love being an entrepreneur. It's great, uh, but it's not for everybody. Good thing that you have your wife as the counterbalance with the consistent uh, income coming. It's a good yeah. way to be able to manage that. Yeah, fortunately, we don't need to rely on that. That's uh, we. It's great because we use her income as our as our uh, vacation money. So, uh, oh, 
Yeah. So, we, so every time we're on vacation, the, the kids are thanking mommy for vacation. <laughs> uh, excellent. Excellent. So why did you write this book? Um, you know, I wrote it. Um, it was interesting. So I started my career in uh, my consulting uh, practice. I, I focused on succession planning, uh, which is really helping organizations uh, create, uh, create a pipeline of talent so that they don't have to recruit quite as often. Um, and so that they can, they can uh, promote from, from within. And one of the very first things that I do with organizations to help them uh, accomplish this is to uh, identify leadership competencies. What does it take? And, and what are the behaviors that we're going to reward? And what are the behaviors that we need and want in our, in our leadership, um, uh, in, our, in our leaders? And, um, and so I, I would work with focus groups. Uh, with various organizations, uh, whether it's, uh, and I work with management, non-management focus groups, and I'd really just ask them, hey, what does it take to be a great leader? What are the behaviors that lead to successful outcomes? And the one behavior that kept coming up over and over and over again, or this attribute, is accountability. And it was interesting, it came up in in, in different types of, of contexts. Uh, a, uh, you know, people kept saying great leaders um, are have a high standard of personal accountability. Uh, B, uh, great leaders are able to hold other people accountable in a supportive way. And C, uh, great leaders are able to kind of create this environment, create the conditions that make it easier for everybody to, to, take, uh, to take greater ownership of their work. And so with this kind of initial data that I kept gathering, and I, kept, and I literally heard that um, every single time I did a focus group, and I did dozens and dozens and dozens of focus groups with various organizations, Every single focus group would talk about accountability as a key leadership competency. And so I became really fascinated with this. And then I began uh, researching uh, and teaching uh, about how to create a culture of accountability. And, um, and uh, personal accountability is really the first step in creating that culture of accountability, which is what this first book is about. Has the pandemic changed the way we look at leaders and what's expected of them? You know, I towards the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of people were freaking out about the the remote workplace and how do we how do we deal with this? How do we manage people when they're not not you know physically there? And I was kind of scratching my head. I'm like, are are you kidding me? Like, um, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of organizations that already, including myself, had have been you know working remotely for a long time. And I think what it just highlighted is uh, is a gap in basic management best practices. Um, and if you have these basic management best practices in place, it doesn't really matter where people are working. And, uh, and, and one of those key management best practices is the uh, one-on-one uh, weekly meeting with each individual member of your team. Um, one-on-one meetings, it, that is a basic management best practice. And, um, and you know what, when you're doing that every week, meeting with each person individually um, on your team each week, it, it really doesn't matter where, where you're working. So, um, so I think it just exasperated a lot of, um, or just, I guess, highlighted some of the weaknesses in, in people's management approach. It's like, whoa, what I'm doing isn't working. You know, it's this pandemic's problem. No, actually, you're just not applying basic common sense management practices and the pandemic is 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 highlighting that so <laughs> i think that's that's my perspective on on the pandemic if you're doing if you're if you're uh, you know applying uh, basic good practices it shouldn't really impact uh how how you lead your team isn't it difficult though to build a corporate culture when people aren't actually in the same location like i get it i had a client of mine who ran an HR practice, and they're all individual people like yourself uh, working with different companies. And so they're all essentially just different individuals happen to be under one brand. And so you don't necessarily need to be a, build a corporate culture. But in early stage companies or companies where bouncing things off of other people is really critical to them, what do you think about that? I mean, how do you build a corporate culture with so many people, especially the 21 to 35 year olds really are enjoying the idea of not going into an office. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, the tools that we have uh, are, are good to facilitate 
teamwork, you know, small team, uh, small, small, uh, you know, team, team uh, work. And, um, yeah, but uh, there, there is no, there is something magical about getting everybody together in the same place for sure. Um, and, um, but I think that's kind of that, that's an extra. Um, I don't think that's, that's, uh, essential for, for, uh, for building, uh, for building corporate culture. I think one of the key things to build a corporate culture is to have a clear vision of where we're going, uh, and to have the leadership continually communicating, um, where we're going and to com- continually requesting people's feedback and creating the dialogue. And that dialogue can happen online, uh, but for sure there's an advantage uh, when you actually get people together and there's this energy um, of having people in the same place at the same time uh, that you don't get uh, don't get online. I think a lot of the corporate leaders who are saying, oh, we need to get people back in. It's not about the corporate culture. It's about cracking the whip and making sure that the overseers are, are getting everybody <laughs> to work. Like when the numbers aren't where they'd hope they'd be, even if the people are working hard, they feel like, well, if I can't see them and my managers can't see them, they must not be working. Of course, they all, there's all kinds of software to follow if you're even touching your keyboard and all the other things uh, that they can do. But I think that some companies are in a panic about uh, what's been going on in the economy lately. And so hence, they want to go and tighten everything that they uh, go and do. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, again, basic... Uh, good management practices. If you are defining people like, uh, if you are defining, uh, you know, uh, what what people should be doing, say, hey, look, these are the basic, you know, standards of performance. This is the kind of work uh, that we would expect to get done in this kind this kind of time frame. Do you agree? Is this is this a reasonable amount of work to get done in this kind of time frame? Sure. If you agree, okay, let's work towards that. And if we're meeting on a weekly basis, and if we have some sort of a mechanism to track. Um, the things that we're doing, um, then it really, there really shouldn't be that, that need to, well, we got to get everybody in the office to make sure that they're working. I think that's just um, a crutch for poor management. You always hear he or she is a born leader. Are certain people born to be leaders or can people develop into being good leaders? Well, I think, um, I think that the, the, depends on how you define leadership. I think a, a lot of uh, the way our brains work, uh, you know, our, the way that we have defined leadership in the past is, you know, we, we see somebody who speaks the most, speaks the loudest, is the most certain of their decisions and makes decisions a lot and doesn't ask for a lot of feedback. And we say, that is a great leader, right? And that's kind of the way our brains operate. And um, and like wow, if they're confident, then uh, then they must know what they're doing, and um, and I think that's the way that we have defined leadership in the past. Um, but the way that I define leadership is leaders elevate others to accomplish a common goal. And when you look at uh, when you look at at leadership in that in that respect. Um, you know, I think that's those. That's the type of of leader that we're that we're looking for. Um, are people born or made? I think anybody can can do that. Really, when you when you take a look at that definition of leadership, um, uh, do can you elevate others? Can you? Ele- and when we talk about elevating others, hey, can we help people uh, you know, leverage their strengths, focus on their strengths? Uh, can you help people? Um, uh, you know, make decisions and exercise their agency. Can you help people grow and develop? Great. If you can, then you're elevating others. I think most of us can do that. Um, can you help others? Uh, can Can you help uh, others accomplish a common goal? Yeah. Those are there's a certain number of behaviors that it takes to do that. So I think anybody can learn to be a leader. There are certain behaviors, there are certain skills uh, that make it much easier to be a good good leader. And I would say that. The, the number one thing is that you want to uh, that you want to improve, that you want to improve yourself, that you want to improve the world around you. Uh, if you don't want to improve yourself and if you, you don't want to improve the world, uh, then, uh, then you're probably not going to be a great leader. Um, another another key uh, aspect that's going to be really difficult to be a good leader is if you fear conflict, if you can't handle uh, having difficult conversations with people, uh, if that really freaks you out, then either uh, you need to really work on that 
And if you don't think that you can get over that, uh, please get out of leadership because uh, you're going to ca cause a lot of a lot of uh, collateral damage. At the start of the book, you picked one of your favorite uh, leaders, President Lincoln. Please explain why and what we can learn from Lincoln. And I happen to love Lincoln. We talked about before this even started. Um, uh, Team of Rivals is one of my favorite books. So why did you pick Lincoln? Oh, well, he was, you know, he's just, I think, one of the, the standard, when we think of great leaders, um, great historical leaders, he's kind of one of the first people to come to mind. Um, one of the reasons I think we, we, we see him as a great leader, I think, initially, uh, is because he accomplished some great stuff. I mean, if he didn't win the Civil War, and if he didn't uh, uh, end slavery, um, we might not think he was such a great leader. So I think the very first thing is he accomplished a couple of great things. But the other thing is when you start to look um, at how he accomplished those great things, he accomplished it in kind of this counterintuitive way where, like I said, you know, a lot of times we're looking at the leader who's the most confident, the loudest, the, you know, uh, the uh, most outspoken, um, the most domineering that was not Lincoln's style. Um, Lincoln was very much about elevating others. Um, and he was just so humble, um, almost to a fault. And I literally, he, there, was, there was a number of times where his humility actually kind of was a problem um, because he, he let people walk, walk all, all over him for, for a little bit too long. Um, but one of the great things about, I think that we admire about Lincoln is I think we recognize when people have great character and we say, man, that, you know, to do that is tough. And one of the things that you kept hearing about Lincoln is he's, he's so gracious. Um, he, and people would question him like, why this person has been a political enemy to you for years. They have said terrible things about you. How could you consider, you know, forming an alliance with them? And Lincoln says, I don't care what people have said about me in the past, I just care about if they will support me going forward, if they will agree to support me going forward. Uh, and he just didn't hold a grudge. And I think people really respect humility. I think people really respect um, graciousness when people are willing, so willing to, to forgive others. Um, and so those are some of the qualities that I think we, first of all, we say, well, he accomplished some great things. How did he do that? He was such a humble, humble person with great character. Uh, that we kind of look at it and we say, oh, man, I wish I could be more like that. Um, so I think that that's why I, I highlighted Lincoln as one of the, uh, a number of people that I highlighted in the book of, of being a great leader. One of the things that I've always heard a lot of great leaders say, and Lincoln I did this, but they always like question whether this was the right thing. A lot of leaders uh, told me who I've interviewed over the years have said, you know, the biggest fault I have is letting people stay in the position too long uh, without pulling them out. And I, and everybody says that, and, but, but I admire them all because I said, the fact is you've given them every chance to succeed. And if they didn't, well, you've tried everything you could to make that happen. But if you pull people too quickly, the smartest people don't want to stay because they're afraid that any mistake, you'll decapitate them. Exactly. So yeah. I always think that's a smart move on their part. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. because um, Michael, in your consultations, is there any software application that has been helpful to businesses in helping their employees develop the three habits referenced in the book? Software? That is a question I have not been asked yet. Um, I have not, I haven't come across any software to help you develop the three habits. And maybe I better clarify for, for those listeners what those three habits of personal accountability are. Um, really, when you talk about, you know, what does it take to be a great, uh, a great leader, to, to set a great example of, of personal accountability, believe it or not, you can actually boil that down to three habits. And those three habits are number one, don't blame. Blame kills accountability. It kills accountability in yourself. And it kills accountability in others because nobody's going to want to take accountability if they think that they're going to be blamed for doing so. Uh, habit number two is look in the mirror. And anytime that you you uh, come across a problem, the very first thing you should do after not blaming is to look in the mirror and acknowledge, hey, how may I have contributed to this problem? Because it gives you some leverage to create some solutions. And then the third habit is to engineer the solution. 
our gut instinct is to blame other people for problems and kind of focus solely on, on the people who are closest to the mess and blame them for it. Um, but really, a lot of our problems are caused by poor systems. And poor systems encourage poor behavior or poor outcomes. And so the third habit is take a, take a systems approach and, um, and look, at, look at the systems and, and the uh, uh, processes that you have in place and fix those first before trying to fix others. And really, you could boil personal accountability down to those three key behaviors. Um, so um, your question was, uh, back to that software? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I've, yeah. never, I've never come across, I haven't come across uh, any software that has helped, helped people uh, uh, live the three habits of personal accountability. I'll tell you what, there is one not a software, but something if you're trying to practice and if you're trying to learn those, those three habits of personal accountability. One of the first things that I do with people that I'm teaching the three habits of personal accountability is I ask them to track for a week um, how often they're tempted to blame, how often they blame or are tempted to blame somebody for a problem. And I ask them to, to keep track of that. And, uh, and when I follow up with them a, a week later, a lot of people are just are shocked at how many times that thought came into their head. As soon as they have a problem, uh, that, you know, that thought, oh, Mark must have done this if I'm having a problem, right? Um, and, and that's not helpful. As a matter of fact, um, I've thought about this quite a bit. There are no positive benefits to blaming other people for problems. Nothing good comes from doing that. And as a matter of fact, it spawns a whole host of unproductive behaviors, both in yourself and in those who you're blaming. So no technology hack, but, um, but uh, I'd say that's one quick little um, experiment that you can, that you can uh, apply yourself to, to start to, to uh, um, learn those, those three habits of personal care. Is there any software training programs that you recommend? I think that goes along the lines of what he's asking. You know, there's lots of different educational programs that companies use to teach different things to their employees. Is there anything in leadership that you said, God, this would be great. Uh, this is a great piece of software. Um, I'll tell you what, actually. So when we so the, my first book is about holding or is about uh, demonstrating personal accountability and setting a very high standard of personal accountability. Um, the other way that to create this culture of accountability is, is the way in which you hold others accountable. Um, and I haven't written a book yet about that, but I teach about that. And there are, there are four habits to do that. But one piece of software that we use in our organizations, and remember, what is, what is the definition of leadership? My definition is leaders elevate others to, to accomplish a common goal. And one of the key pieces of software that we use um, is Trello. Trello is a simple, a very simple project management tool that helps us uh, keep track of our work and accomplish a common goal. Uh, and so when it comes to holding other people accountable um, in a positive and a supportive way, uh, I, I find that uh, the Trello is a very, very effective tool. Um, so, so there you go. That's, that's the closest thing I have to, to uh, kind of a software hack to help you be more accountable. So you uh, mentioned Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, that they were approachable, humble, and put others' interests first. Without getting into the politics, what does former President Trump do as a leader that people are willing to follow him? And on not just in the U.S., but I mean, he got the second largest number of votes, even though he lost to Joe Biden. Yeah. And uh, he is, you know, looked up to around the world by a lot of different folks. So it seems he flies in the face against everything you write about in the book. And yet people follow him. What, why is that? Uh, well, again, it, it you know, uh, for, for your listeners, I got to give you a heads up. Mark, Mark said, hey, can I ask you this question? I told him, no, no, I don't want to talk about Trump because I, I really don't have positive things to say about him. But then I'm right before the show, I'm like, okay, fine. You can, you can ask you know, what can we Trump. learn from him that why people follow that, him? So, so let's go back to the definition of leadership. Uh, my definition of leadership. Uh, leaders elevate others to accomplish a common goal. Um, there's a difference between a leader and an influencer. 
And I think our, we have an overabundance of influencers um, in, in the world. Now, influencers, they don't really ask uh, anybody to accomplish anything. Um, and, and they're not always asking, and they're not always trying to elevate other people. And another aspect about kind of a, an implied uh, part of that definition of leadership is that you're trying to make positive change. There are lots of people in the world um, who attract a lot of followers. Um, and, if, and if having followers was the only qualification of leadership, well, then by that standard, Trump would be a great leader because he, um, and, and so would Hitler, because he attracted a lot of followers as well. But the, he's, one of the things is uh, the difference between the way that Trump and, and, and kind of, uh, and, and the Hitlers of the world uh, lead is that they attract people by inspiring uh, hate, uh, greed, self-centeredness, and, uh, and elevating yourself above other people, which is the complete opposite of leadership. Uh, and so, and they also encourage, and one of them, Trump was great at this, is that he encouraged other people. He gave permission really to the world, to, to the United States, uh, to give into your most base human instincts. Uh, if you want to trash talk somebody, that's totally fine. Um, you know, if you want to take absolutely zero accountability for your actions, that's totally fine. Um, and so that's attractive, right? If, if somebody in a leadership position is telling me that I can say and do whatever I want and there are no consequences, hey, sign me up, right? That sounds great. And I think that's why, uh, why uh, certainly Trump has attracted a lot of followers. Um, but he's not inspiring any kind of positive change. Uh, he's mostly trying to uh, just simply elevate himself. And I think the consequence and the fallout is a lot of uh, inspiring negative change. And yet there's a lot of um, people who follow them and a, a fair number of really supposedly smart people uh, that follow him. So which makes interesting discussion for sure. And, and by the way, and I just want to, maybe I should have prefaced this. I, you know what, if, if you want to know my, my politics, I'm actually, I'd say more conservative and, and more, you know, if I was in the States, I'd probably be somewhat leaning. Well, I, I would have used to be leaning into to the Republican side uh, of my political belief. So this has nothing to do with politics. Yeah, it's, of course. Simply, it's simply the way that he leads. He's just a terrible, awful human being and a terrible leader. Okay, on that note, so we asked the question, where have the great leaders gone? You asked that in the book. Are we lacking in leaders or just the wrong kind? Yeah, and I think exactly what I said about Trump is, is really kind of what, you know, we have, the, the internet is full of a lot of influencers. We have a lot of, you know, people who have followers. If that was the only qualification of, of leadership, then, then we'd call them a leader. But like I said, they're not, a lot of influencers um, are not, they're not trying to accomplish anything positive. They're not trying to uplift their followers. Um, their followers are just like, oh, that's cool. I want to be, I want to be cool like them. So I'm going to purchase the same things, what they tell me to purchase. Um, that's not, that's not leadership. So, um, leadership is doing the hard things. Leadership is, uh, is, and Simon Sinek is a great, um, uh, he talks about this, about leaders go first. Leaders do the scary stuff first. They do the hard things first. Um, they, they model the behaviors that they want to see in, in others which is hard. It is hard to be a, a, a leader and it is hard to always be modeling those positive behaviors that you want uh, in, in uh, your followers. So, um, so yeah, by, by, that, by my standard of leadership, the standard of leadership that I just shared with you, um, I think we're lacking. We, we have a lot of people in leadership positions that just simply lack the courage to do the hard things. Um, it's easy to blame the economy when things are bad. It's easy to blame uh, people in the company when they've made mistakes. That's why we're not performing. That's not leadership. It is really hard, and Lincoln did this as well, uh, is to say, you know what, although this person on my team made the mistake, you know what, that's on me. That's my bad. As a matter of fact, actually, CEO of Shop Shopify actually just did, just did that. Um, he just, uh, I think last week, he just said, um, you know what? I took the company in the wrong direction. Um, and uh, and that's, that's the cause of these layoffs. These layoffs are a direct result of my decision. And it's totally on me. Um, that is hard. 
Uh, and I think we have a, a lot of, uh, or we have too few leaders who are willing to take those risks and do those hard things to sacrifice their ego, to sacrifice perhaps be willing to sacrifice their reputation to do the right thing. Would even be better is if he took no salary or options while he was fixing um, this problem and not took a salary after letting go people. So it'd be interesting to see what he actually does um, to make it more authentic. Um, why do you write that picking leaders based on technical ability, tenure, gut feel is a bad idea? Well, it's because what I said just at the initial uh, part of this interview is that the way our brains, our brains are programmed to look to the most confident, outspoken, domineering person and to say, hey, well, that looks like leadership material and to put them and promote them into leadership positions. And then when they get into a leadership position, we're like, oh my gosh, they're the worst. They never ask me what, uh, you know, for my opinion on how to do things. They're always telling me what to do um, and, you know, blaming me for problems. Um, <laughs> and so we have, uh, as, as a society, we tend to promote people um, uh, to leadership positions uh, based on the, uh, in many cases, which is the, the exact opposite behaviors that make for good leaders. So we promote people, um, uh, you know, based on these things that that in fact turn turn out to be make them not good leaders. And so if we continue to to just go on our gut feel, we're going to continue to have, um, you know, too few good leaders and and a lot of bad managers in uh, you know in in leadership positions. Uh, so we need to get specific about what are the behaviors that that in fact elevate other people. What are the behaviors that uh, that help organizations accomplish uh, a common goal? Figure out what how those behaviors you, are, and then promote people based on those behaviors. So, uh, so how do you hold people accountable for more than just hitting the sales numbers? Because it, it always seems that's all anybody really cares about at the end of the day. Yeah, I think you know what a lot of people who have worked in a uh, in a company where the salespeople are compensated 100% on commission, I, I think that anybody who has worked in that kind of an organization can testify to the dysfunction of 100% uh, uh, the, 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 the dysfunctional behavior that 100% commission produces within, within an organization because they're going to do nothing. It just promotes complete self-interest um, at the expense of the interest of the company and at the expense of, in many cases, their teammates. And so, uh, so the way that you, that you uh, encourage people um, to be accountable uh, beyond simply hitting the sales numbers is to start off with what are those behaviors, identify what are the behaviors that we want in our organization, identify those and make those the promotion criteria and say, hey, if you wanna get hit in this, in this organization, um, you know, you got to you got to be demonstrating these behaviors, um, and you also have to make it be you know make that part of their their compensation package. Uh, is that we're not just going to or, and how we how we evaluate your performance is not simply on that, but um, but it also goes back to what is the focus? What are the leaders talking about all the time? Most of the time, when we go to meetings and the senior leaders uh, leadership are talking about things, they're usually talking about the numbers. Well, guess what? If you're always talking about the numbers and not talking about the behaviors that produce the numbers, you're going to get people who are solely focused on producing the numbers at the expense of the behaviors and the expense of your teammates and at the expense of the company. And so to me, it's like, look, identify what those key behaviors are that lead to successful outcomes that elevate others, that accomplish a common goal, um, make those the promotion criteria, talk about those things, uh, and and reward people based on those behaviors um, and stop focusing so much on the numbers uh, when, you're, when you're leading these, these meetings. What's the difference between responsibility and accountability? Uh, well, if you take that example of sales, um, a salesperson is responsible to, to, to hit the sales numbers. Um, but they're, but they're, um, but they're also accountable to, uh, to do the paperwork. Um, so they're not handing off, uh, incomplete paperwork to the operations people to, um, uh, 
to, to fulfill those orders. Um, the difference between accountability and responsibility is, is look, responsibility is task focused. It's what are my list of things that I need to do? And if I can check those things off, I'm a responsible person, okay? Uh, accountability is about uh, results. What kind of results uh, am, I, am I producing? So, um, and that's really the key difference. And the problem is, is in many organizations, we have accidentally over-focused people on responsibility at the expense of accountability. Um, and people, and the reason we, and the, the way we do that, a lot of people in, in HR will do this. You think about a job description, how's a job description written? Is it written in terms of tasks and activities or is it written in terms of outcomes? Uh, it's written in terms of usually tasks and, and activities. And what the problem is, is that we can be so focused, we, we all know this, that you can, you can do all the right things and still get the wrong results. Absolutely. If you don't care about the results. And so the point is, is accountability is more caring about the results than caring about the activities to get the results. And so, uh, and that's the kind of, that's, I tell you what, that one distinction, when I teach CEOs this concept, it's like this light bulb goes off and they're like, oh yeah, we have been over-focusing people on do this, do this, do this, do this. No, we don't hire people to do a list of activities. We hire people to get certain results. And so if you simply focus people on the results, you're actually freeing up their creativity to be able to figure out, to, to problem solve around obstacles. But if you say, you know, do this, do this, and I encounter an obstacle and well, I can't do this, I'm done. That's responsibility. You know what? You told me to do this, you told, but I couldn't do it, so I'm done. But if you say, look, Michael, I don't care how you do it. I just need you to get this kind of result. Then I will problem solve. When I hit these obstacles, I'll figure out a way around it because my goal is not simply to do the task, it's to get the result. And, uh, and that's, that is really the, the, the kind of the first step in creating a culture of accountability is to help people focus on less on responsibility more on accountability, more on the, the results of what we're trying to accomplish. You know, it's funny when you talk about, uh, especially in sales or even product development, if, if they don't hit their sales goal, then, then instead of saying, I wonder why they didn't hit the sales goal, was it effort? Was it product? Was it price? What exactly is it? But immediately they want to get rid of the uh, salesperson and, and put the blame on the salesperson instead of digging in and even talking to the customers and finding out, what could we do actually better? You know, because I know John or Mary is working really hard here. I can't understand why they're not getting the results as opposed to, oh, we better get somebody else uh, in that spot. And how often do you see that's the case where they really just don't even um, essentially take response, the management doesn't take responsibility that maybe the product isn't that good or it's just overpriced or whatever. They well, maybe I'm that. not supporting this person as well as I should. And I think yes. that uh, it goes back to what you talked about earlier about people being too quick to pull the trigger. And I think, hey, look, if you need to err on the side of, of pulling the trigger uh, too early, or, you know, too quickly or, or too late, it's better to invest in humanity, invest in the human, human being and say, you know what? And again, it goes back to habit number two of personal accountability, which is look in the mirror. If, if Mary isn't hitting her sales numbers, um, am I setting Mary up to succeed or am I setting Mary up to, to fail? And, and, and I guarantee you as a manager, when you have performance problems, most managers don't look in the mirror when they have performance problems with the people that, that they're leading. They're, they must, they immediately think, well, there must be something wrong with that person. Other people can do it. And and maybe and maybe other people can do it because they have different different talents, different strengths, or whatever. But um, but they they say, hey, you know, or most managers don't take a look and, and say, am I actually setting this person up for success? What could I do differently to to uh, help Mary be more more successful? Which includes a the way I interact with her, or my management meet or our one on one meetings, um, but also the processes that we have have, have put in place. Are those actually uh, supportive, uh, supporting uh, Mary or not, right? Uh, those are things that, that people should be looking at. I once worked with a doctor's practice where they elevated the bookkeeper to the manager of the practice, and she failed terribly. And they were going to fire her. And I'm like, fire her because you put her in the wrong position? She's a bookkeeper. I mean, that's her skill set. You could have said, hey, let's put you in an intern base and see how it works out. 
the desk and you put her back to being the bookkeeper. But I said, you're going to fire her after 30 years of service because you made a mistake. They never, right. It never occurred to them. So I said, you need to admit to the practice that you made a mistake. And they did. And they said, the people start crying that the fact that they actually admitted that they made this big mistake and they didn't want to see her go, just not to be the uh, office manager uh, for it. So I think it, it was a learned lesson for everybody that, you know, you can admit that, hey, you put the person in the wrong position, then that's why they didn't make it. That's a cool story. Thanks for sharing that. How, how does a leader develop a culture of accountability when most people fear making a mistake will embarrass them or cost them their job? I think that's like a huge problem. Well, that is the, uh, that's why habit number one of personal accountability is don't blame. Um, and and that, that one behavior uh, is one of the greatest ways that you can create psychological safety within the organization. If people are not afraid of getting beat up for and shamed and having the nose rubbed in their mistakes, uh, they're going to be far more willing to say, oh, yeah, you know what, Mark, I, that was totally my bad. I totally screwed that up. And here's what I'm going to do to fix this. And that's precisely the behavior that we're after in the organization. But it's so it is interesting that in, in my practice, what I mean, when I taught this for so long, I can see the, the cause and effect so clearly between people, you know, uh, employees lack of willingness to take accountability and the culture of blame that exists. And it's so funny when I, when I you know, uh, highlight this link to CEOs, it's like, oh my gosh, like, again, like this, this light bulb goes off, like, do we actually have this culture of blame? Now, the CEO is going to be the last really to know if they have a culture of blame. Um, uh, a lot of people are looking to their behavior and we're not very aware of our own behavior. Uh, and so that's really why I work a lot of times with kind of the, the senior managers, because it really starts with them. They need to stop. They need to stop blaming other people and circumstances for problems. They need to model um, looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, this is how I think I contributed to the problem. It's not 100% my fault. It's not 100% your fault. But I think each one of us maybe, uh, you know, have probably done or didn't do things that led to where we are now. And here are the things that we can change. That is accountability. And it needs to start from the top and it needs to be modeled from the top uh, before we can expect anybody else to, uh, to model that. How are people that say that something isn't their problem holding themselves and their organization uh, from success? And you talk a lot about that in the book. Yeah, it's this, uh, it's not my problem attitude. And that is really the antithesis of, of accountability. It goes back to responsibility versus accountability. Are we focusing people, over-focusing people on tasks? If you are focusing people on tasks, then you're going to get a lot of that. It's not my problem. It's not on my list. You know, this weird thing that happened, you know, that caused this problem of things that I should be doing. So it's not my problem. And it's management it creates this. It's not my problem mentality. Um, you know, by over-focusing people on, on their, their scope of responsibility. So that's, that's the, the first thing. Um, but, um, but again, it goes back to, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. It goes back to uh, leaders need to model the way. Leaders need to, uh, I share an example of, uh, le leaders need to pitch in and do the work, the not glamorous work. Uh, to show people, hey, we are all in this together. And if I see a piece of trash on the ground, I'm going to pick it up. If I see a safety hazard, I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to tell the safety manager. I'm just going to fix it, right? I don't care if I'm the CEO, the, the chief operating officer. Um, leaders need to model the way they need to model the behavior of rolling up their sleeves, doing the not glamorous work to say, hey, look, uh, it's not in my job description to empty the trash. But I'm going to do it because it needs to get done, um, and nobody else is, is around. Everybody else is busy, whatever. Uh, so it, it it starts. It really starts with uh, helping people understand the difference between responsibility and accountability. Helping people understand what is your job. Your job is not simply to do this this list. It's to uh, you know, uh, achieve these results, and it's modeling the way and doing those things. As a matter of fact, I I mean I saw, or I mean, I heard an employee one time complain to me. She said, um, 
our manager, it was at a small medical office and, and she said our, met, our uh, manager brought us all together at lunch, uh, at the lunch hour to complain to us that there was a box left by the back door all morning. And he said, you know, nobody, not, none of you people picked it up. And this employee, she turned to me and she's like, you know what? I watched my boss walk past that box five times that morning without picking it up himself. So why should we be expected to do the little things when he is not willing to? And that is precisely why so many organizations have a lack of accountability is because they don't have great leaders who are modeling the way. Please explain the concept of systems thinking and how does one develop that skill? Um, you know, systems thinking, the best book, uh, you might have heard of uh, Peter uh, Senge and his, uh, I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, but um, in his book, The Fifth Discipline. And I read that, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago or something like that. And it really resonated with me. And that's, uh, he really popularized the idea of systems thinking, uh, which is looking beyond the easy solution. Uh, or the 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 most obvious, you know, like or what we think is the is the the problem, and looking a little bit, uh, thinking a little bit harder and looking a little bit deeper. The most common um, the most common need, I think, for systems thinking is the way that our brains work. They actually work um, in the most efficient manner possible, which is kind of shallow thinking. And the way that this manifests in the workplace is that when we see a problem, or at home, by the way, anytime that we encounter a problem, what happens is our amygdala, anytime we see a problem, you know, we interpret something as a problem, it triggers our amygdala. And our amygdala is programmed <clears throat> to tell us to find the person, not the thing, the person closest to the mess and blame them for it. And if we can just get a stick and just beat them harder, we'll fix the problem. And that's really shallow thinking. Um, when in fact, um, you know, I, so I'd say, so to answer your question, how do you develop this, uh, this idea of systems thinking is to notice when your amygdala is prompting you to blame the person closest to the mess. When you notice that, that's your kind of yellow yellow flag to say, hey, hang tight. There might be there might be something behind this. There might be something else, uh, less obvious, that's really contributing to this problem. And so, if you want to develop a systems thinking mindset, I think that's the, that's the easiest thing you can do is just notice when you're prompted to blame somebody. And 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 here's another phrase: if you ever think or hear the words, well, you just should be more careful. If that's your solution, <laughs> that's not a sustainable solution. Uh, but if that's if that if you think the words or say the words, well, you should be more careful. That's kind of your trigger to say, you know what? There's probably something else. There's probably a system. There's probably something about the process, the word process that's um, that's contributing to this problem. I'll give you a quick example. Um, my uh, so there was three people uh, working in my so as my assistant and myself. We noticed that one of our uh, soft, one of our templates, um, uh, one of our survey templates was deleted, and so we, um, uh, I knew that I didn't delete it. My assistant, she knew that she didn't delete it, but there was one other person, and we knew that you know only one other person had access to these templates. Had to have been her. So my assistant was like, "I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna yeah. murder her, or whatever." Because it wasn't the end of the world, but it was a really annoying. It was a it was a big it was a problem because we didn't have any uh, we didn't have any other copies of it, and uh, and so I said, hang tight. Let's just follow the three three habits of personal accountability. Let's take a breather. Let's not blame. Let's look in the mirror. Did we do anything to make it uh, easier for Mel to to delete that? And as soon as we asked the question, both of us admitted. I almost accidentally deleted one of our templates. And she's like, I almost accidentally deleted. Well, why did we almost accidentally delete one of our templates? It's because our templates were mixed in with our work in process. And so that led us to habit number three, which is engineer the solution, which is come up with a systems, systems uh, solution. Simple system solution is to create a folder called templates and put our templates in that folder away from our away from our work in process so that we wouldn't accidentally delete it because we could have just oh well you just need to be more careful right that's the solution be more careful well, or we could put some sort of safety safety mechanisms in place 
to make it harder to make the wrong decision. And that's an example of a very common thing that happens in the workplace where we haven't done the basic things to, to prevent people from making mistakes. You had this great graphic, I liked it, about differences between managers and leaders. It's on page 45. You called garbage. Uh, why did you write that? Aren't managers mostly implementers and leaders visionaries? Like, it's kind of like Steve Jobs versus Tim Cook. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people love, uh, you know, love like, oh, managers push, leaders pull. Managers are focused on the details. Leaders are focused on the high level thinking. That to me is garbage <laughs> because to be an effective leader, you also have to be uh, aware of the details. Um, you have to, you have to be, uh, you have to be a good operational person as well. Um, and the reason why we think that all great leaders are these Steve Jobs visionaries is the same reason that we think that that parents think that kidnappers are lurking lurking around every corner. It's because those are what make headlines. When in fact the best leaders uh, that I know, they're they're not necessarily great visionaries. Of course, you have to have some kind of high level visionary thinking to be to be an effective leader. But they're they're not you know they're not amazing visionaries. Um, but they are really good at elevating other people, and they're really good at helping other people to accomplish a common goal. Um, they don't make headlines necessarily, um, and uh, and I think the world is full of a lot of really good leaders who don't make headlines, who are not great visionaries. And you know who else doesn't make headlines? Is all of the business failures. Think about all of the businesses that fail. I can I would be willing to bet that a lot of the businesses that fail are full of great visionaries at the head that cannot operationalize and cannot figure out how to crank out a profit. Um, and so so I think the reason why we have this this false idea that uh, that to be a great leader, you have to be this amazing visionary is uh, is just simply because th those are the ones that that grab the headlines and uh, and it's giving us a false perception of reality. Although I have to say that combination of Jobs and Cook together really was offense and defense uh, on a football team. Um, they did a great job when they were together. Uh, yeah, and complementary skills. Yeah, and for sure. And actually, I wanted to, I'm glad you mentioned that because I just wanted to say, look, you can be an effective leader, uh, you know, regardless of what your what your strengths are. I think you can be you can be an effective leader. And we've and I think you know most people can see that that have been in an organization for a long time that have had a number of effective leaders. You can see, yeah, this person was was uh, an effective leader, and then this other person who came in, they were also an effective leader, but they had a completely different skill set, completely different strengths, right? And and that that can work as long as you have other people there to help compensate for your weaknesses. That you have systems and processes to compensate for your weaknesses, um, and and it can work work great. But I just want, I just think it's we're doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, by buying into this false notion that you have to be this visionary and sitting up on on you know this thirty thousand foot level, not aware of the details, um, that's that's not reality. You write uh, you write people apply two types of influences: coercion and leadership. That sounds like Putin versus Zelensky. Uh, what can leaders learn from this? Uh, yeah, so uh, um, coercion versus sorry, what did you what did you say? Uh, coercion uh, versus uh, and leadership. Yeah, coercion versus leadership. So leadership is about um, leadership is about influencing and inspiring people to to a cause. Uh, coercion is about carrots and sticks, and um, and that's really the way that a lot of uh, a, a lot of people are, a lot of leaders only rely on carrots and sticks. Now, accountability, uh, there has to be consequences to your actions, okay? So yes, consequences are part of accountability, um, but they're not the only part of accountability. They're not the only thing to create this culture of accountability. Um, they're, they're a small, they're a very small part of, uh, of creating this culture of accountability. 
but um, yeah, the difference, and you, you, you can see that in the difference, certainly when we were getting the reports at the beginning of the war, um, you know, we kept hearing the morale of the Russian troops was just brutal, just, and they were, you know, because uh, A, they were kept in the dark, they were lied to, they knew they were lied to, uh, and they were just being, and they were being threatened. If you don't do this, you know, bad things are going to happen. And so that's going to kill morale. Uh, Zelensky, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to, um, to to rally everybody around a common a common goal when you're when you're when the whole nation's life is at risk. Uh, that will mobilize people pretty quickly. But I think the one key thing that Zelensky did that it just endeared him to the whole world, to his nation, and the whole world, and immediately vaulted him to the level of wow, he's a great leader is when the U.S. offered him a ride out. Yes. Um, and he said, I don't need a ride. I need weapons. And the whole world was like, wow, that guy is willing. Okay, and, 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 and we immediately notice when somebody is willing to take a personal risk um, for the greater good. And we respect that, right? Intuitively, we, we respect that. And I think that was that key moment where we realized um, he is not about putting himself above his people. Um, in fact, he is about, he's going first. He's like, look, if somebody's going to, if the first person, you know, if somebody needs to die, it's going to be me. Uh, that's a huge, and we're not, and the CEOs, we're not asking our CEOs to, to die, but we are asking them to sacrifice sometimes their ego, to sacrifice face. Um, and um, uh, admit when they've made mistakes. People respect that when they see it, and they immediately like that is a great leader. And I think that's that's the difference. And I, pe I think people are like, yeah, I want to be more like Zelensky because that showed tremendous courage. Yeah, I, I give him all the kudos because we saw the leader of Afghan run out as fast as he could uh, as soon as the U.S. offered him a. A plane out. He goes. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go. Yeah. And somebody else do the folded. somebody else do the hard work. Yeah. And and the country folded in two weeks, right. even having a six to ten to one advantage and everything, and they still folded uh, very very quickly. Um, there was an interesting study you mentioned on blaming others for mistakes done by a Harvard researcher, Amy Edmondson. Could you please talk about that study and what we can learn from it? Yeah, Amy Edmonton's, Edmondson's. She's done a lot of uh, research around um, around blame in the workplace and psychological safety. Really, uh, is is her her area of, of focus, and um, and she's worked a lot in, in hospitals. This was also this was a hospital study, and it's interesting. She um, she was looking at the rate of reporting um, safety incidents. And she expected that, uh, so what she would do is she would evaluate the leadership, you know, she'd do a leadership evaluation, and then she would look at the numbers as far as how many, how many safety incidents are being reported. What she expected is that, um, you know, there'd be a poor safety record with the poor leadership, but she found the precise opposite, that the, the safety record, as far as measured in number of incidents reported, was much higher uh, with the good leaders, the better leaders. And it kind of dawned on her at that point, oh, it's because people are more willing to say, I screwed up. That was a mistake. And we need to put something, I need people to know about it so that we don't make that same mistake. So that nobody else makes that mistake because people's lives are uh, uh, at stake here. But you see this, you know, these people in these high power positions, these doctors who, <laughs> you know, we hear about the doctors, the God complex, I know everything, you nurses are the peons. Um, and, uh, and when people make mistakes, what are you doing? How could you do that? Right? Well, flip, I'm not going to, I'm never going to admit a mistake if it means that I'm going to be blamed or shamed or possibly lose my job. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's exactly what that, what that study um, discovered. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us. I love the book. I hope people will be buying the book. And I thought you did a great job of covering all these great topics that we as leaders have to think about and that you have to think about putting your people first and how to maximize their potential. And hence why there's got to be a lot of bad leaders when 37% of people are not happy, only 37% are happy with their jobs. 
So there's a lot of work to be done and hopefully your book's going to contribute to that. Thanks so much, Mark, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, enjoy your weekend, everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.